0: The place to subscribe is TruthJihad.com. Welcome to the live version of Truth Jihad Radio. Kevin Barrett here. Got hit with some interesting technical difficulties. Right as the show was starting, how strange. The internet completely dropped right at the exact moment the show was starting. One of those weird coincidences, I guess. Anyway, I think I'm broadcasting now. So let's find out... uh Mr. Rowe, am I broadcasting? Please send me a message. Let me know. And, uh, let's see if I have my guest, Michael Brenner, on the line. Hello, Michael. Are you there?
1: Hello. Who's calling?
0: Hello, uh, Michael. Kevin Barrett here on Truth Jihad Radio. Uh, we're talking
1: about Crimea oh,
0: tonight. How are you?
1: Me? I'm, I'm fine. I'm all, I'm all set to go. Fantastic. When you, when you first rang, I picked it up and there was nobody there.
0: You know, that's because uh, my internet dropped completely at the exact moment the show started. So maybe it's a weird coincidence, or maybe uh, the paranoid conspiracy theorists about such things are right, but anyway, we're back. So, hey, welcome. Well,
1: I, 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 I blame it on either the Nepalese or the Bolivians, with the Paraguayans and an outside possibility.
0: Well, I would say it's probably those Nazis hanging out in Paraguay, uh, you know, Hitler and those people that are still, uh, causing trouble with their flying saucers. They're all from the gone.
1: Either they're gone or they're 138 years old.
0: <laughs> you would think so. Yeah. So anyway, so I, I think we will uh, attribute this one to just bad, bad luck, but it's good luck that we're back. So.
1: Speaking of good luck, luck
0: it's, well, it's good luck that we're here to be able to even talk about these uh, provocations of the Russian bear and these other crazy, uh, machinations of, of these lunatics who are running the asylum these days. Uh, you know, why, why do you need to go tweak the bear's nose off Crimea, violate the territorial waters? And even if you think that Crimea is occupied, then under the, uh, Laws of of the sea in international law, you're not allowed to do that. So, what were the British thinking?
1: Right. Well, I think we have to put that in the context of the broader Western American sort of led uh, hostile campaign against Russia. And as always, any any significant developments like this, is is multi causal, right? And let's see if we can just sort of briefly identify you know the factors. One, I think the place to begin is really the Wolfowitz memo of March nineteen ninety two, which laid out a grand strategy for the United States in the post cold war era because the essentials of that have now been almost universally accepted by the entire American foreign policy community. I don't think that's an overstatement, although there's some nuances and some marginal points of uh, only partial uh, consensus. And uh, what it says, in effect, the United States is in a position, in effect, now to shape world affairs, and to organize it in accordance with American principles and interests, uh, the two being uh, identical, and that's an assumption, you know, an unquestioned assumption. And in order to do that, and it states it very bluntly, the United States should use all means at its disposal, including military force, to prevent any power. Uh, antagonistic or potentially antagonistic to the United States from growing, developing, and expanding its field of influence. That is the intellectual and strategic framework in which almost everyone, and I would argue just about every senior official in uh, every post-Cold Cold War administration, uh, has been attached to. So I think that's really the most important factor as far as, and that applies to China, Russia, and in regional context, it applies to Iran. Um, although that's, that 's there we have to add the Israeli faction let, so let, 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 so. let me let me
0: question this framework for a second though, okay, I understand the okay. wolfowitz doctrine, I understand it 's been essentially universally accepted one way or another by the whole foreign policy community what i don 't understand, right. Michael, is why one would pursue this doctrine the way the u s has pursued it that is rather than pursuing a rational Uh, approach of trying to divide and conquer by playing off Russia, China, and Iran against each other, which would involve the realistic appraisal that China is by far the bigger long-term strategic threat, and therefore you would do everything possible to befriend Iran, as Brzezinski said very clearly in the Grand Chessboard, Iran should be, we should mortgage everything and give the Iranians everything they want and then some to make them our friends, let them have their revolution, let them trash Israel as much as they want, let them trash societies as much as they want. We need them. And uh, so that's what we should do with Iran. We should basically give them everything they want. And with Russia, we should be super friendly with Russia, true, too, and play them off against China. So why are these neocons shooting themselves in the foot well, by alienating is, the three
1: countries and pushing them together? Well, the simple answer to that is that you are uh, assuming that the people who have been uh, the main actors and responsible for the making of American foreign policy and its outlines as well as tactical choices are knowledgeable, they're rational, and have a capacity for diplomatic, for the use of diplomacy and the kind of thinking required to take effective diplomatic action. The truth of the matter is, the United States foreign policy has been directed by people who are ignorant, uh, and when it comes to the, the workings of foreign policy, are really quite dumb. I could use the word stupid, but that word is, is out of favor. It is almost as simple as that. Yes. An elementary principle, as you correctly stated it, is if you have two rivals, opponents, or whatever, you try to keep them apart. That was the the, the the elementary notion behind Nixon-Kissinger's opening with China, instead of treating both of them as as implacable enemies and therefore driving them together. But... Let's bear in mind, if you superimpose the Wolfowitz framework on this reality, each of them is a potential threat. And if you uh, are applying the strategy in a rather mindless fashion, and also in a certain sense, a, a I don't use the term emotional, uh, but in a sort of dogmatic, unthinking fashion, you don't follow... The logic through to the point where you say, Well, if we try and confront Russia and we confront China, the two will get together and the net effect will be a greater threat to the United States than each of them individually. This is simply a failure of mind, of logic, to be owned and only understood in terms of the context of American sense of exceptionalism, a providential mission, and the belief that the the advent of a new age that conforms to these principles had been ushered in by the collapse of the Soviet Union. So we're talking about non-logical and utterly irrational factors in the equation which are Of utmost importance.
0: That's uh, that makes a lot of sense. You know, speaking of irrational U.S. decision making regarding Russia, for many years, actually throughout most of my life, ever since I first paid attention to these uh, foreign policy matters, uh, when I think I was twelve years old, in maybe eleven in seventh grade. Uh, The social studies teacher showed us a bunch of John Birch Society film strip material, and this was during the Vietnam era towards the end of it. And I was very alienated by that. And as I looked into things, I realized the Vietnam War was a criminal, horrific endeavor. And so that r- r- woke me up. Right. And so I, I said, well, these crazy anti-communists from the Birch Society and these crazy anti-communists killing millions of Vietnamese, uh, that th- would suggest to me that maybe the communists aren't as bad as I'm being told. And so I started doing, you know, look reading history, and I encountered a lot of material that was relatively friendly to communism, as well as some anti-communist material. Anyway, I'd lean towards thinking the Cold Warriors were wrong uh, and so on. That was my interpretation. However, recently, going back and reading things like Sean McMeek and Stalin's war, uh, it makes a very good argument that, in fact, Stalin was the nastier, more dangerous and uh, more the aggressor of the two dictators who started World War II by jointly invading Poland. And the whole purpose of the war was to save Poland. And yet what we ended up doing was sending so much lend-lease aid to Stalin that the communists nearly did take over the world. And it was strategically incredibly stupid. We should have done a divide-and-conquer policy that would have forced the two dictators to make some sort of, to damage themselves and then make peace. And we could have ended up with no communism and no huge Reich, just a, a German Reich in the German speaking areas. Well. And there would have been no Holocaust. Well, maybe there wasn't anyway. I don't know. And no, you know, no mm. 60 million dead in World War two and no communism and Cold War and near nuclear annihilation. The history would have been a lot better according to that, uh, sort of alternative Ooh. history thesis. Well, yeah, I
1: understand. That line, I think, in blood uh, I think it obliged some very important things. One, it was not in our power to do that. Second, Hitler
0: wasn't it. it it's to, in, it's to not come. in our power to not give Stalin land lease.
1: Well, but we didn't give him land lease. The Soviet Union would have collapsed. It might have collapsed anyway if Hitler hadn't made major strategic mistakes in nineteen forty-one. Right, and Stalin not was soon for peace. Not, let me. Then you're stuck with a Nazi Germany, led by Hitler, which controls the entire European continent, and it would have been a Cold War with possible hot points of conflict between uh, Hitler's Europe and North America. That would hardly have been a desirable outcome, and God knows what would have happened to you know, to Britain. But let me let me use your point to get back to U.S. attitudes towards Russia today. Well, two other factors in the, in, in explaining the anti the, the widespread anti-Russian animus, I think, are one nostalgia for the Cold War. And I think that some people, like Blinken, for example, who deep down sort of regret they didn't have a chance to fight the Cold War, and so I'll fight it against Russia instead. That becomes a sort of personal thing. More generally, we have transmuted in our own mind Putin's Russia into Stalin's or even Khrushchev's Soviet Union. For one reason, it's intellectually convenient. It's a hell of a lot more difficult to understand and to address Russia as it is, right, than it is to deal with or to think about a caricature of Russia. And we are indeed li- living in a fantasy world. Let me give you two examples. There was on YouTube two consecutive programs, which was in-depth discussion with four so-called Soviet experts in Brookings and academia, one of whom is now the senior uh, Russian person on the National Security Council. Another a strange woman, Fiona Hill, was a senior Russian person on Trump's National Security Council. Among other, I mean, these people grasp of uh, the realities of Russia both internally, in terms of the thinking and outlook of Vladimir Putin, in terms of its foreign policy, bore not the slightest connection to reality. In example, one of these geniuses said, Russia historically, among other god-awful traits, has always been a just-enough power, by which she meant... And, and explain, Russia has been overrated but was able to generate enough power to consider itself or to be considered by other powers in Europe as a big, big actor. And she cites the failure of the Russian army in 1914 and makes no mention of the fact that this just-enough phony power took on the greatest military machine that had ever existed in history up until that point, Germany, and defeated it, a defeat to which we provided only a minor contribution. That is the nature and the mentality of the people who are living in a world of fantasy. Now, let me add to that. I'll be brief. The example of the last month finally dawns on some people around Biden that treating Russia and China simultaneously as equal threats doesn't make any sense. We have to concentrate on China because, as you correctly said, in the long term, China presents a kind of global multidimensional challenge to American hegemony that Russia does not because of its economy, especially, not a military term. So let's try and neutralize the relationship with Russia to some extent so we can concentrate on China. What that means exactly, I've never understood. Let's leave that aside. Okay. So Biden makes the call at the height of the Ukraine tensions to Putin and says, let's get together, and I'm sorry I called you a killer. He did. He apologized on the phone.
0: <laughs> um, I mean, that's, that's almost humorous, uh, isn't it? <laughs>
1: uh, you know, but it's true. And Putin was very cool and rational, incredibly disciplined, and has been dealing with these idiots and, and narcissists and ignoramuses for 20 years now in the West, just got just... He, you know, figuratively sort of shrugs his shoulders. I'm not going to make anything of it. He said, okay. So Putin, meets, uh, uh me, cancels the idea of sending our fleet into the Black Sea, tells the Ukrainians, uh, look, I know that we talked with you uh, six weeks ago and urged you to move your forces to the contact line and said we'd back you up. If you made an effort to liberate the Donbas, currently under under the control of the Russian population, right, or part of the Russian population, right, and they forced Zelensky, who was a comedian, that's his professional career, he imitated the previous president on television, and I got him elected. So he obviously doesn't make these decisions. It's whoever's pulling his strings. Anyway,
0: you know, you know, he he should be doing he's doing a comic uh, rendition of Biden Biden apologizing to Putin for comic. calling him a killer.
1: He doesn't, he, you know, he doesn't even have to do a comic rendition of himself. He is a comic,
0: right? <laughs> right.
1: But, but, but anyway, somebody's got to do I mean, Biden I mean, apologizing to Putin. Thirty seconds. Thirty seconds. of of the. So Biden backs down from this crisis in the Ukraine he, Washington, created right? as part of his newfound awareness that we cannot take on Russia, generate these confrontations. And also we were behind the attempted coup in Belarus, which was coincidental in time with the Ukrainian crisis. Uh, so he goes to meet Putin. They accomplish absolutely nothing of substance because that wasn't the point of it. And they say, uh, yells, I'll stop calling you, you know, names. Uh, let's sort of calm the waters and see where that takes us." Don't forget, this is a meeting you have. Although Putin understands English, everything had to be translated back and forth. So each of them had like 35 minutes to speak. You get that 35 minutes, you get nothing. Okay. Biden, uh, Biden comes back to Washington. Within three days, he's slapping new sanctions on Russia. Washington is behind, as we now know, the British naval provocation off of uh, Sebastopol and does one or two other provocative things, which slipped my mind. I mean, this is just a week ago beginning three days after he's back in washington is there any coherence to this no
0: well at least he's not calling Putin names
1: uh, sorry
0: at least he's not calling putin names a killer yeah he he took that back
1: (laughs) (laughs) you can't make this stuff up so so i mean what that tells you is, apart from the fact that, that Biden's mastery control of his own administration in terms of setting a line in po- policy, enforcing it, concerting it, making sure everybody understands and follows it, is weak. It tells you too that most of the people in the administration, whether it's Blinken or this Russian expert or Sullivan or God knows who, are still viewing Russia as hostile and an enemy. And their understanding of the new relationship is no different from the old relationship. And these these are features of people who mentally... And psychologically cannot escape from the old the fantasy world which they inhabit and which they share, so we've got a real problem, and that problem is in Washington, yeah, and the same thing with regard regard to China, mhm.
0: Yeah, it seems like there's there's not a thoughtful and coherent policy to say the least, which is kind of strange given that. Uh, My research suggests that there is that permanent deep state around the National Security Council and the the other elite groupings, the CFR and the Bilderbergers and the trilateralists and so on. You'd think with that permanent deep state, they would have some continuity and they would have some smart people and they'd be able to work out a coherent policy and stick to it. But for some reason, they can't. And the front men like Trump and Biden, who seem to both have had ADD, it uh, see, seemed to be uh, perfect emblems of the confusion and the ADD of the whoever's really making policy, if anyone is.
1: Well, see, I've never seen it in terms of a really organized conspiracy. What you have are groups of people like-minded, uh, and each group overlaps and meets with the others whether it's the military, whether it's the neocons, whether it's the democratic neocons, and they can overlap and crossbreed and so forth even without developing a Bolshevik-like organization to conspire because the broad perspective is shared and also because Americans, frankly, are lousy at conspiracies. I mean, we do a lot of underhanded things, but a sustained organized conspiracy, that's not really American, right? And the other important point, I think, to keep in mind is you can be intelligent and be crazy at the same time. It's not the question of where these people score on IQ tests. Although I'm sure if you gave them an IQ test now, they'd be 10 or 15 points lower than they were when they took them at the age of 14. But that gets into deep psychological scholarship, if you like. It's not a question of being stupid as such. The question is of behaving illogically and being stupid in that sense, being willfully ignorant like this brilliant scholar at Stanford, the Russian experts, who who forgets that in World War II, Russia and Soviet Union was a hell of a lot more than a just enough facsimile of a great power. You only do that if you're living in a fantasy world. Mm -hmm. In other words, you're divorced from reality and facts, which are, you know, obvious. How to say it? I mean, the sun rises in the east, right? Soviet Union defeated Nazi Germany in World War Two. And here is a Russian scholar saying this. You don't do that unless you know the gyroscope in your head is tilted off center. And that's unfortunately and sadly, this is where we are in terms of the prevailing attitude towards as well as strategic conception of the United States' place in the world. You go up and down Mass Avenue, K Street in Washington, all of the think tanks, and you will not find on Russia and China and, the bro- and, and, and adherence to one version variation of the World for Witch Doctrine or another any deviation. And this is... you. You know, I spent a lot of time in and out of Washington over the last, I don't know, 40 years. This is unique. There was always elements of disagreement. There were always mavericks. And so well, there are any now. And this is another sign of our collective sickness.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. D- dissent has been marginalized, and, and this radio show is a prime example of that. Uh, well, Russia is whether or not you know it's a great power at the same level of the U.S. And, and whatever, however we want to read World War II history and so on. It's obvious that uh, Russia does have a formidable military, and it has very serious people who are committed to defending their country, who learn from their World War II experience. Yeah. And are not going to lay down and allow themselves to be uh, wiped out the way they were in the 1990s. Uh, and I think that right. danger—that it's—it's—you know—they're—they're they're poking a very dangerous bear when they send ships into Russian territorial mm-hmm. waters.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, when you read Putin's speeches,
0: when you listen
1: to his interviews, which I am convinced. Even the so-called Russia experts, the people with the Russia briefs, in this administration, and the last one, and the Obama one, have never read or listened to, quite frankly. Putin is, in fact, unique. He's done something impressive. He is laid out. In detail and with nuance, exactly what he thinks Russia's interests are, what its perspective on the world is, what he expects to, to achieve, and what he thinks the rules of the road should be. No, no statesman I know of has ever done that, and he's done it. And all totally ignored.
0: And it's actually pretty reasonable what he says. It's not. It's not self-serving BS. Like right. self-serving. What
1: he wants to do is first of all ensure. Russia's political territorial integrity and he sees a couple of threats one is the neoliberal threat in effect to 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 how to put it denature russia by making it economically subordinate and going back to the Yeltsin era and i think washington has never let go of its resentment that Putin replaced Yeltsin, because all they wanted was a Yeltsin who was not a drunkard, but just as feeble and weak. And Putin is anything but that. So one is a neoliberal threat. Second, they do not come with having neighboring countries— ones, that, for example, like Ukraine, were, were, were part of Russia and in, in Belarus for 250 years, longer than the existence of the United States, to be wrapped into an anti-Russian NATO alliance. And their concerns about that, I think, are, are emotionally milled. They fear everything from military on down. I don't think Putin conceives of being attacked by by NATO. But the, the 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 you know this is the sense of vulnerability in Britain is so deeply rooted in that, that you build up your 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 own forces, which is done deliberately, right? uh, with great success. And then as far as the West is concerned, here we thought that we had totally neutered Russia. It was a zero on the international stage. Then along comes this guy, Putin, and then the thing gets punctuated. First, in 1914, and sorry, 2014, we organized the, the coup against the democratically elected president of Ukraine. And in fact, we made a grab for Ukraine Mm -hmm. to break its ties with Russia, bring it into the Western orbit, and therefore further surround and weaken Russia. And to our great surprise, Putin responds by annexing Crimea and supporting the separatists in uh, Lugansk Mm
0: -hmm. and
1: uh, Donetsk. We didn't expect it. And we're offended that he doesn't play the role of the willing victim. And then a year later, he has a temerity to come into Syria, support Assad, and prevent us from achieving another objective, which was unseating Assad, which is not an American interest, by the way, but it's simply carrying out willfully, wittingly, or unwittling, as The Israeli grand design for the Middle East, because the only ones who would have replaced him were the jihadists, the very people who brought down the Twin Towers on 9-11. Well, we, we, we
0: can discuss that. It is almost the 20th anniversary. Well, I know you got these, you got these ideas about, let's Let's see. Well, I've, I, I've got, I've got a, I've got a huge it's library a, of material on this. I'd be, I'd be happy yeah, to share, know, share with you some let's, of the, let's,
1: let's not talk about many that. dozens the of books,
0: is, uh, dozens of peer-reviewed articles,
1: yeah, et, cetera, et cetera, I know the point is that the people, the Al-Qaeda people and the spin-offs and the Al-Nusra and even ISIS was a spin-off of, of Al-Qaeda.
0: Made an alliance
1: with the disaffected ex-military people from Saddam's regime, which is why they were so effective militarily. That you know, I'm sure. Right, but this huh? is this is
0: all done as part. As, these are essentially uh, militias. These are Western-created/slash infiltrated death squads. Uh, I, I don't know if you've read Nafiz Ahmed's work on this, uh, but he convinced, he convinced Gore Vidal that 9-11 was obviously a false flag right after it happened. Uh, because he, he discussed the, the like Turkey had arrested a bunch of high level Al Qaeda people Kevin, and they were totally non-religious we, and they got, they, their defense was they were working we for NATO. Can we get
1: off 9-11, please? Well, well you, is, you brought it up. No, but look, look, let's come back to a discussion about Russia. That's what we're talking about tonight, right? The point is that people in Washington suddenly realized that, one, Russia had the political will to intervene because it saw the overthrow of Al Assad in a number of ways as threatening its interests and national security interests. Two, they had the military means to do so, and that the... Russian military was far more sophisticated in terms of weapon systems, in terms of organization, in terms of morale, than all of the estimates emanating from uh, what 16 intelligence agencies had concluded. And let me take 10 seconds to also tell you, and this is from the very top, right, we totally missed the movement of an armada of plane, ships, and men into Syria in 2015. Totally missed it. And the source of that is a friend of mine who held a very, very senior position in the Office of National Intelligence Estimates at the time. So we're not only misguided living in a fantasy world, are not very confident, and then all of this gets shaken up we some of it exposed to us, and our, our, our fantasy world is shaken, not stirred, by what Putin does in Crimea and then in Syria, and we panic. Mm-hmm. But what, what are, and we're still, in a, we're still in a state of
0: panic. Right, so we're in a state of panic, but what are we trying to prove, or what are these people who ordered this British ship to uh, provoke the Russians to Crimea? What, what is the purpose of this kind of provocation?
1: Really well, it's, it's 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 like people gesturing and or, or changing <laughs> threatening gestures, gestures rather than throwing blows in a schoolyard. We still think we can intimidate Russia. We can intimidate Putin, and we're not going to accept that he has any privileged space beyond the borders of Russia, which to our mind does not include Crimea. In other words, we trying to show him we're still top dog and you are subordinate to us. And Putin had been giving signs, both he and Lavrov, for months that this, the game, the day of turning the other cheek, to this kind of offensive behavior by the US and the West was over it should have come as no surprise and also bear in mind that Putin if you look at a continuum of thinking within Moscow in in Moscow about relations with the West about security issues Putin himself is well towards the dovish end of the continuum. So it made both sense in terms of his own thinking, in terms of objective reality, and in terms of political realities and elite public opinion in Russia for them to respond. And so they did. And I think when Russia, when when Putin yesterday or the day before said, you know, next time they do this, we might sink the ship. And then he said, he called out bluff, and he said, look, even if we sunk the ship, I don't think the West, the United States, would have attacked us because they know that was a losing proposition. So you're bluffing. Don't try and intimidate me. Intimidate me. And so Washington has no response to that because what he said is absolutely true. And if that comedian Zelensky under American party he had sent his bunch of neo-Nazis and others to try and attack the Donbas, The Russians would have sent in that massive 75,000 force they'd assembled and would have walked right to Kiev, and there's nothing that NATO could have done. So you talk about stupidity, there you are, a combination of stupidity, and a stupidity which derives largely from the fact that they have been living in a fantasy world, a make-believe world that bears only the slightest connection to reality. That's where we are. And and so
0: it's it's actually darkly humorous, and I guess it's appropriate that the Ukrainian leader is a comedian (laughs) – and in a way it seems like kind of a combination of my two favorite anti-war comedy films there's Duck Soup with Groucho Marx insulting the diplomats yeah. of of the uh, other country and starting the world war which seems kind of like what these guys are doing uh with you know Biden calling Putin a killer and then apologizing for it, it reminds me of the scene where the uh where Groucho starts the war with uh, some undiplomatic effrontery and then there's Dr. Right. Dr. Strangelove where, you know, the right. the whole thing is is based on the Russians have built the doomsday machine, which is this bomb that's going to destroy right. the whole right. world with radiation. And the and the president says, well, why didn't you tell us about it? Like, what would be the use of yeah. this thing if you didn't tell us? Says, well, well, it was a surprise. The premier likes surprises. And the Russians, I think they actually do have right. doomsday machines, Michael. I've been reading Plague Wars by Goldberg and, and Mangold. And, you know, having read Germs before by Judith Miller and her neocon friends, I didn't really believe that stuff. But but Plague Wars, I believe that the Russians have, they built this vast arsenal of germ weapons that they could have used to even more thoroughly than nuclear weapons to utterly annihilate. The entire West, and and you know now they've built these tsunami machines with these missiles and tidal wave, uh, radioactive tsunami machines. They've got the doomsday machine, and they have told us, and yet uh we're tweaking their nose, which strikes me as is somewhere between yeah. Groucho you know, and Duck Soup and and Doctor Strangelove.
1: Situation. Well, look, there's a hello. You there? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, first of all, there's been an implicit doomsday machine in place since the 1960s, whether you want to add to it plagues and germs and tsunamis and cyber wars, whatever. And everyone with with half a brain knows that. Okay. What are we doing? I think in Washington, you really don't have, as far as I know, Dr. Strangelove. You don't have the counterpart... To what's the guy, the Air Force general who was our chief of staff and wanted us to use atomic bombs to uh, Dien Ben Phu? What the hell's his name? Very famous guy. Uh,
0: well, there was uh, D- Douglas May. MacArthur supposedly at one Kurt, point was talking about that. Curtis LeMay. Uh, Curtis LeMay.
1: Kurt, Curtis, yeah, Curtis, Curtis LeMay, LeMay. okay. Yeah. I don't think, and I have no knowledge of or mention uh, of any Curtis LeMay. In the u s military don't forget the people who've risen to the top for the last generation or two are essentially careerists you know they're not adventurers. some of them really like to talk tough, but I don't think any of them and they play these games in in the far east you know simulations of war with china uh you y- y- you know, as if they were going to go up against the Japanese Imperial Navy again and the Battle of Coral Sea and Lady Gulf. And they wake up in the morning to turn on the, whatever their VCRs and watch uh, remastered copies of Victory at Sea. So these are just so, war uh, gamers. Yeah, but that's just posturing. I don't think any of these guys want to go to war. And you look at the stories, you know, during the Trump administration, Obama, et cetera, uh, when it came down to it, you know, the military, they wanted to have this business of maintaining uh, escalation dominance in every region of the world, and they want to stay on in Afghanistan, they want bases in Iraq, and they want bases in Syria. They don't want to fight a war, though. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have this notion, frankly. First of all, they don't want to go down the history as losing a war. That's what bugs them in Afghanistan. Yeah, they, that's yeah. why they oppose the withdrawals. That's why they oppose the withdrawals from Syria. That's why they were desperate to get back into Iraq after being kicked out in 2008. They—it's all about a state's reputation. What you tell your grandkids over Thanksgiving dinner. That's what it's really about for these guys. I I have this image, and you know what they like is to have so many American bases that you can play on base golf courses in circumnavigating the globe.
0: Mm-hmm. Nice work if you but can get these, it.
1: Well, most of these bases don't have golf courses. In fact, uh, so uh, the danger really is that that. Stupid, ignorant civilians, and some of the military guys too, living in these sort of fantasy worlds, can do incredibly dumb things and provoke something that nobody wants. So fortunately, a guy like Putin is incredibly level-headed, cold-blooded, incredibly disciplined, and is not going to let himself be provoked into anything like that. And I think that's probably the same, true of the Chinese leadership uh, as well. Although they're the most dangerous places, Taiwan and the Taiwan uh, Straits. There's a very good video in which Chas Freeman, our former ambassador and who was the man who was the official interpreter, Many many years ago, as a young man, for Nixon when I went to China in 1972, and still speaks and writes with with sort of brilliant insight about foreign affairs and especially China. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we spoke about the Taiwan Straits in great detail, and all the circumstances and the history and the legalities and this uh, and the Chinese beijing's attitude and so forth if anyone interested and it's worth looking just go on 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 youtube Chess freeman salon s-a-l-o-n china uh, or taiwan
0: yeah i, I actually uh, saw that
1: yeah you, you did i mean yeah you, you know you, you this is a slight digression you, know, you think well You know, after generations, administration after administration, in which foreign policy, forget about domestic policy, which has been just as bad. But anyway, uh, foreign policy run by a bunch of dimwits. And you say, maybe this is just normal. Maybe this is the way it's always been. Maybe we've never had anybody better, smaller, uh, more sophisticated, more new, more diplomatic. You know, you begin to think that, right? It's just, natural because that's what you see you see around us and I do we'll see a guy like Freeman and a couple of other people and you say no it doesn't have to be that way these people are indeed deadwits
0: mm-hmm. yeah yeah well Fred yeah. Freeman I guess he didn't he first get into the uh, the foreign affairs game when he noticed that the ambassador uh, couldn't speak the language um, <laughs> and uh, he ended up translating for, for the ambassador or something like that
1: uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know all those. I years. think that's the story. I heard. I've, I've heard no, but interesting all, stories about
0: that guy. By the way, first I,
1: of all, I, I, Chas, Chas, Chas Riemann is is a brilliant man. I mean, he has these other qualities of political sophistication, and a, a tremendous political and diplomatic mind. I think, and in and in, on top of it, he's also simply brilliant in IQ terms. I mean, this is a man who was the official translator. Not translator, interpreter in Beijing for Nixon. He was the man who taught himself Taiwan in six but Taiwanese, which is really a separate language, or was at the time he was there and learned it. Right? He's the man who taught himself some Arabic because they made him ambassador to Saudi Arabia at one point. Mm-hmm. Right? So yeah, you know, is an exceptional person. But you know that generation and the previous generation. Years older than he did produce some really remarkable men. We don't have them now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And well, I, I not wonder not if that's. Only, what, why you, is you, it? Kevin, not only, not only don't we have them sitting in high office in Washington, I don't know where the hell you'd find them. Well, not in the think tanks in Washington. Well, well Fre- Freeman University.
0: Right, Fre- Freeman was marginalized, I believe, when the neocons came in and I think a lot of other more serious people were too. My introduction to Freeman came from Captain Eric May, a uh, an army intelligence guy who ended up writing op-eds for the Houston Chronicle. And he was advised by Freeman, who was the best man at his wedding. And so I befriended Captain Eric May after 9/11, because Captain Eric May was among those of us who noticed the totally obvious about 9/11. And I'm shocked that you don't know this, Michael, but that's okay. It was 20 years ago. In any case, Captain Eric, Captain <laughs> Eric May very likely sacrificed his life no, by doing, doing this. They fired him from the Houston Chronicle. Uh, I believe that uh, Chess Freeman kept supporting him, uh, and I would bet that if you could get Chess Freeman in private and talk about about 9/11. He knows every. He
1: knows everything. David Ray Griffin knows, and so on and so forth. Well, oh, Kevin, I'm too young to remember those details. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. let, me, let, me, let me say Friedman, uh, um, you know, Obama when he was elected in a way, he wanted to appoint Chas Friedman, and Miss already was went out you know, on the grapevine, as as director of national intelligence. You know, that's that coordinate supposedly coordinating census through which all the reports pass and accepted from the CIA and the IA, et cetera. It would have been the perfect man for the job. And uh, then the neocons in Israel could happen because uh Freeman in one of his speeches said, Talk sense about Israel and the Middle East and Palestine. And Obama as a Obama has never seen a fight he didn't want to run away from. The man's an utter coward. Uh, and so was Clinton, and even Trump in, in 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 different West, which is in a way fortunate. You know, having cowards as presidents is not necessarily a bad thing.
0: Yeah, I, I was glad but, that Trump uh, cut and run after he assassinated Soleimani and the Iranians obliterated that yeah, base. Yeah. I mean, but what if know, they obliterated a 100 it, guys in the base, it, too?
1: It, it, well, yeah, but if we hadn't had three successive cowards, we might have been in war with Iran for the last 10 years. Yeah. Be- because all the pressures and instincts were to go to war with Iran. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: the bad news was and that I, Trump I was cowardly you.
1: enough to surrender to <laughs> Bibi Netanyahu, but the, the good news was he <laughs> he didn't go to war. Yeah. Right. In Bush's case, I understand it was his wife who played an important role, really, and said, you know, yeah. He said, you know, she said, look, this was when the pressure really came to a head from Cheney and others in '07, early '08, and you know, he was on his way out, right? Hmm. And uh, she said, you know, from what I understand, there you are know, others I'm sure are telling him the same thing. Said, look, you want to. Could leave the presidency with the after the Iraq business with the last and, and, and Larry, I don't know the fact that you saw a war with Iran. And of course, Bush, through all his defects and things that are like that, he isn't Bush, George W. Bush is not crazy. <laughs> uh, I think mentally and psychologically, he's a very ordinary person. That has nothing to do with his views on X, Y, or Z. He's more emotionally stable, I think, than not only Trump, but President uh, Obama as well. But anyway, let's not get into that. Mm.
0: Yeah, isn't, isn't it funny how every new president makes you kind of uh, see the good qualities of earlier presidents who were hideous, but not that hideous? Yeah,
1: no, I'm not. I have no grief. <laughs> Bush, I'm just trying to understand what happened. And, and yeah. you know, the fact that the guy's not crazy is helpful. Because uh-huh. <laughs> right. you know, recent experience, right? So, and other people, I'm sure, as well. And he himself must have realized, oh, this is not what I'm going to do. But anyway, so Obama comes in, he's ready to appoint Freeman, and, and the usual crowd get after him. hmm.
0: Which is the point I made, right? I said that the neocons marginalized him in yeah. post-911. Well, the neocons
1: and the Israeli lobby and the Israelis yeah. themselves. Yeah. I mean, now the Israelis in public, this new jerk, the new prime minister, who's supposed to be even more of a neo-fascist than Netanyahu, gets up there in public, warns the United States not to do such a thing as continuing negotiations with Iran. If not what? mobilize. Is lobby in Washington and, and what? Institute of impeachment proceedings? Right.
0: Yeah, yeah. The arrogance of the Israelis is off the charts. That makes the Americans seem humble by comparison.
1: Yeah, yeah I you know. But this is again, these people are so weak. That's so lacking of character. I mean, just natural human instinctive nature and uh character. I mean I don't know how somebody, whether it's Obama uh, or Trump, or, or Biden, or Clinton can allow themselves to be treated that way without really busting a blood vessel and slapping these guys
0: down. Well, well, supposedly Obama felt that way and pretty openly about Netanyahu. Um, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, but Obama, you know, Obama will always say something and put so he can put it in his memoirs or get it on the record. Obama was a coward, as I said. Yeah. Yeah if, if he yeah, he really hated, yeah if he really hated if he hated bad anybody I know. yeah i mean yeah you know, let's think about how did they became after the, the the collapse, the but, collapse Michael, we, the we only thing. have
0: a, we only we have 30 seconds left he became
1: he became wall street servant he did yeah so From we boy. we
0: we have 30 seconds here let me just suggest that maybe the politicians. That's lots of Borscht. It's lots of Borscht. <laughs> eat Borscht. Eat borscht, borscht, borscht and, uh, and,
1: and <laughs> Appreciate and Putin. Read, read, read Putin's speeches.
0: Okay. But also remember <laughs> that the American politicians who are not so cowardly, uh, the Kennedys, uh, Paul Wellstone, and even Dennis Kucinich, who was just on my show telling me how he narrowly escaped the three yeah. assassination attempts while he was mayor of Cleveland, taking on the deep state banksters who run Cleveland yeah. and the whole United States, uh, you know, Barbara Boxer told me that, or, I don't know, she she told me that she knows 9-11 was an inside job, essentially. And she told one of her top aides that she knows that Wellstone's murder was quote unquote a message to us all. So no wonder there aren't a whole lot of brave politicians. Obama said he could end up like JFK if he did what you're telling me to do. So I think that's kind of going to have to be the last word for this show, but you can come back at me next time. So thank you so much, Michael Brenner. Great talking with you. You're welcome. Thanks. Okay. Bye. Take care. Bye. That's Michael Brenner, international relations uh, professor, University of Pittsburgh, uncommonly truthful <laughs> as international relations people in the USA go. I'm Kevin Barrett of Truth, Jihad Radio. in the next hour.
1: Uh, Revolutionary right, freedomslips.com. We'll be right back after this message.